and flick to page 1168. Start at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, and we're going right through to chapter 2, verse 10. Galatians 1, 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism before many of my own age among many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia and later I turned to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Not, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very things I had been eager to do all along. Uh, ben for reading for us. It's a funny old reading that, isn't it? Um, more kind of history and personal detail of the Apostle Paul than j just about anywhere else. Um, uh, we need this morning to work out why, 
Um, why did he write in this way? Uh, what reason? Um, let's backtrack for a moment. Um, you will be familiar, I guess, with the idea of, of relative truth. Um, the way that our culture no longer sees truth as, a, as an absolute thing, but as a relative thing. This truth is true for me, your truth is true for you. Truth in that sense no longer objectively true, it's just subjectively true. It's true because I, I feel it to be true. And because I feel it to be true, then it must be true. But if you feel something else to be true, well, that's true for you, and so your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and that's the way that truth works. It's relative. If all that sounds a little bit like gobbledygook, then this cartoon makes it perfectly clear. Um, little boy doing his sums on the board. It may be wrong, miss, but it's how I feel. Seven times five is 75. Subjective truth. I feel that it's true. So it's true for me. All of this means that um, my sense of who I am, how the world works, and what really matters are all bits of personal truth. I can't impose my ideas about the way that the world works and the things that really matter on somebody else because it's just my truth. And you've got a different truth. And that allegedly is how we can all get on with one another. Because if I'm not pushing my truth on you and you're not pushing more truth on me, we will all be a, a very happy society together. It's not entirely clear that it's working, but that's the idea. Well, compare that way of thinking about truth, this idea of relative truth, compare that with something that Paul has had to say uh, in uh, the few verses that we looked at last week and that came just before uh, the reading that Ben gave for us. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. It's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? It is, it is something like me saying, listen, if at this moment here at Christ Church on Sunday morning, uh, the, the, the stained glass window behind me was to shatter, uh, and uh, through this sheet torn down, a ten-foot angelic figure were to appear, hovering in the air before you, declaring to you a message, because he had come from the very heavenly realms themselves. And I looked at him and said, no, 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 it's my message that's right. Yours is wrong. Don't listen to that angelic figure before you. He's in error. It's only me that you should listen to. What an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, the arrogance of it. Angelic figure speaking from heaven. But that's what Paul is claiming here. Do you see it? His claim for his message is that absolute. On what basis? It's an amazing claim that Paul is making. So, so three headings for us to try and make sense of what's going on here. First, the nature of this claim, the evidence for Paul's claim, and then the importance, the significance of the claim that he's making. 
First, first the nature of the claim. Um, I hope you're going to forgive just a, a little bit of a diagram to try and help make sense of what's going on um, in this letter to the Galatians. Because you, you see in Port verse 7 um, that Paul mentions some people who he says are throwing you into confusion. Um, the, these people he calls later in the letter the circumcision party or you could call them the Judaizers, people who want to, to, to push upon the Christians in Galatia a, a sort of a Jewish way of thinking about their faith. It, it goes something like this. And Paul, th these Judaizers were saying, listen, Paul's not playing straight with you. Because there was this gospel message that, of course, in, in Jerusalem and the apostles knew what it was, but... Paul realized that all of this gospel message, the real thing, would be a bit tricky for you. So he sort of edited it, sort of massaged it, took some bits out that he thought you might not like, because he just wanted you to like him, and he wanted you to like his message. So he gave you this watered-down version of it that he thought would be acceptable to you. That's why Paul gets accused of being a people-pleaser. He's just saying what you want to hear. And these Judaizers, this circumcision party, were saying, look, we're going to get you back on track because we've got the real thing. Uh, and if we declare that to you, well, then you'll have the proper thing once again. Well, how does Paul respond? Well, look at verse 12. Paul says, that's not the way it was at all. My gospel is not derived like that. I've not got it secondhand, and I've certainly not changed it. No, no, no. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And that's why, verse 11, I need you to know that the gospel I preached to you is not of human origin. It's God's gospel. And in a sense, Paul says, how much could explain my personal transformation? Moving from a, a passionate commitment to, to Judaism, uh, there in verse 14, advancing before all others of my own age among my people, extremely zealous, so zealous that he was persecuting the church, even overseeing the stoning of Stephen in Acts. Um, and from that, God stepped in, verse 15. But then, God who set me apart from my mother's womb was pleased to reveal his son in me. And, and it's from that that we get our phrase, someone's had a Damascus Road experience. It's such a dramatic turnaround. Paul moves from being the persecutor, to the preacher. A dramatic, definitive breaking in of God. And that's what Paul says. That's where my gospel comes from. And it's what you and I need. If, if we're ever going to resist the notion that your truth's your truth, my truth's my truth, and no one can assert that one truth is better than anybody else's truth, 
in order to say no to that, in order to say that there is an absolute truth, well, the only basis we can say that is that it's because it's God's truth. It is the truth of our Creator, the truth that belongs to the one who brought you and me into being, His truth. That, that's what Paul is claiming here. That's the nature of the claim. Well, on what basis does he back it up? Because it's a, it's a big claim that, that he has absolute truth because he has the message from God himself. Well, well the evidence of this claim uh, takes the form of more personal history. Um, it begins with Paul identifying uh, what, he, what he did once this revelation had been made known to him. Now, you know how this works. Um, if, um, if somebody decides to, to become a Christian here at Christ Church, um, wonderful, delightful, and, and what do we do? Well, we immediately say, well, look, look, we'd love you to do this, this, this excellent little course, Discipleship Explored or something like that. Or, or maybe we could get you to meet with somebody who's been a Christian for quite a few years, and they'll help you um, to get clear uh, on the Christian faith that you've, you've now decided. Um, to align yourself with. Maybe you can remember how that was for you, the way it worked for me as a 20-something, was I, 21 years old when I became a Christian. And for about a year, met with a lovely man called Ken, very patient, because week after week, I'd turn up with my little list of ridiculous things that I found in the Bible that he needed to explain to me, because I couldn't make sense of it. And that's what he did uh, for a year, answering all my questions patiently explaining things that I didn't understand yet. That's the way we do it. Is that how it happened with Paul? Not in the least bit. Do you see what he says? He says that as soon as he was, had his life turned around by God, uh, verse, um, there in verse, oh, I've lost it, verse 17, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went off into Arabia. No discipling, no training, nothing. Some people even wonder if, if these three years in Arabia kind of somehow functioned almost like a, a substitute for the three years that the other apostles had with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I mean, who knows? Was it a kind of retreat for Paul in Arabia where uh, the Lord Jesus met with him in a personal sense by his spirit, uh, revealing the gospel to him in that direct way? Or, or was Paul actually already clear and he began to preach in Arabia? It's not entirely clear. What is clear is that Paul didn't go seeking anybody out. He wasn't trained or discipled. Now, it was utterly unique, the way in which Paul immediately uh, was granted the understanding of this gospel. Only three years later did Paul eventually decide that he'd find his way to Jerusalem. And even then, it was only Peter and James he got to see, and just for a little 14-day patch. Just 14 days. Not exactly a, a degree in pastoral ministry from the Jerusalem School of Theology, is it? Just more like a, a sort of a brief get-to-know-you visit. And then he was back out on the road again, preaching in Syria and Cilicia. 
And the most that people back in Jerusalem at the HQ got to hear was, verse 23, that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul had moved from poacher to gamekeeper, from persecutor to preacher. And Paul says, they praised God because of me. I hope you see the, the uniqueness of this. It's, it's not the way that it normally works. It's not, it's not the way that we would do it now if somebody became a Christian believer. So if, you, if you're currently considering the Christian faith, if you're sort of teaching on the brink or, or you think you've just become a Christian and now you're going to sort it out, please don't book a flight to Arabia and stay there for three years and think that's going to sort it for you. This is not an example for us. This is utterly unique and unusual. God's usual way of working is to speak through his church, through brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reason that 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 can happen for us now, that we have an authoritative truth to share with one another, is because this happened uniquely to Paul then. Are you with me so far? It's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary claim that Paul is making that his gospel is of divine origin, directly given to him, and that's why it's absolute truth. And the evidence for it is, is the way that it came about in his life. And now, let's just see finally the importance of this claim. Because at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, we're rattling through lots of history, in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul Um, gives the next bit of his story. Uh, Let me read you the first couple of verses there. Then after 14 years, I went up again. 14 years, that's quite a long time, isn't it? 14 years. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders... I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now, I hope you're thinking that seems a little bit funny. Because it looks as though Paul's having a bit of a wobble, doesn't it? You get the impression that, that having previously been so utterly certain of this absolute truth, now it's almost as if Paul's lost his nerve, wondering if he'd got it wrong after all. A bit like me this this last couple of weeks, uh, when I have been constructing in our garden a summer house, and on a regular basis, um, I'm on to my friend Richard Newman and asking him to say, have I got this right? Should I have done that? Can you just check that everything's in the right place. Because I'm terrified that I could be building my summer house in vain, and when I get to the top, the roof won't actually fit on, and that would be tragic, wouldn't it? So I keep checking it out. I keep asking, is it all right? right. Check it's all right. Is that what's going on here? Has Paul lost his nerve uh, and asking for the Jerusalem Christians to, to, to check up on him? I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's like this. Paul's gospel was a gospel of justification by faith. 
That's the gospel that the Bible teaches. It declares that we can be fully and completely right with God, solely by believing what Jesus has done for us, without any requirement for circumcision or obeying some laws. And Paul knew that that gospel of justification by faith was wonderfully and brilliantly uniting. Because it means you haven't got any class A and class B Christians. Some who've got sort of extra additional sort of qualifications on the basis of their heritage or their culture or, or some law keeping. No, 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 everybody's the same. And that's why Paul will say later in this letter, there, there is no distinction there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. At least that will be true, or that would have been true, if the disciples in Jerusalem were teaching the same message as Paul. But, but if they're not, then that's going to muck it all up. Because those Jewish Christians won't be thinking like this, which would mean that Paul's anticipation of a wonderful new unity between Jew and Gentile, well, that would be entirely undermined. Do you see, Paul didn't go to, to ask the leaders in Jerusalem if they could check up on his gospel. No, no, it was all the other way around. Paul went to check that they were getting the gospel right. Because if they weren't, then his great dream of wonderful unity would be undermined at their end. Do you see? Well, wonderfully, their gospel and his gospel, just the same. Verse 6 those of chapter 2, those leaders who were held in high esteem, they added nothing to my message. No one was required to be circumcised, not even Titus. Instead, they just extended the right hand of fellowship. They shook on agreement that their message was the same. All they asked was that Paul might remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do. So loads of history here. Um, I hope you followed it through with me. But the wonderful thing about this history is that it establishes that the gospel can be trusted, delivered from God as an absolute truth for you and I to know and to trust in. So, so, so let me finish with, um, with a story that I'd be amazed if you've not heard before. Uh, Blondin was a famous tightrope walker in the middle of the 19th century. And his most famous exploit was, was crossing on his tightrope uh, the Niagara Gorge. And one time, as shown in the picture, he intended to cross it pushing a wheelbarrow. And, and the, the, the story goes, I don't know if it's really true, the story goes is that as he was preparing to set off, uh, a great crowd uh, was there to watch. And he shouted to the crowd, do you believe that I can cross this tightrope? pushing this wheelbarrow. Yes, they cried. And he approached a, a particular individual in the crowd, and he said, do you, do you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across this gorge? And the man said, yes, I do. 
and Blondie said, hop in. <laughs> so there's a world of difference, isn't there? Between a kind of intellectual assent that something is true and believing it with your body and soul, believing it with your all, putting your life on the line for it, heading off to Pakistan to a hostile environment where Christians are persecuted. There's a big difference, isn't there, between sitting in the crowd shouting, yeah, I'm sure, that's true, and putting your all into the truth of this so that every one of our days is lived out of the certainty that this matters, that this gospel can bear our weight. Shall I pray for us? Our Father God, um, we thank you that we, we don't have ideas uh, crafted by human beings recorded for us uh, in these scriptures. Uh, but we have a truth that you have revealed, a truth that you uh, make known. And we thank you for the way that um, we have evidence uh, to confirm that. Uh, but Lord, we confess that uh, those, though these things um, uh, are so sure and certain, uh, yet our faith uh, so often wavers. I pray that the things that we have read and, and thought about uh, just over these last few minutes uh, might help to settle our faith, uh, to, to so, to so under, underpin uh, what it is we believe, uh, that our, our hearts, minds, souls, bodies, everything about us uh, would be given uh, to, uh, to loving and serving you, convinced of the truth um, of this gospel of grace. Uh, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.